Good morning, Rocky Peak. <laughs> Great to see you. Hey, uh, my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors. And if it's your very first time, I want to welcome you here. Let's hope that God meets you in a powerful way. Uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And so inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. You'll definitely need that for today. So let's go ahead and take it out. And if you guys are all set and ready to go, I'm going to jump in. You guys ready to go? Let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here at the start of this new season. Uh, as we get ready for summer, as we get ready for a new series God, we're just excited about what you're doing in our church and how you are waking us up and calling us on and breathing new life and giving us vision for our lives, for the kingdom that you've called us to be a part of. And we're just excited about it. And so we just want to be here uh, ready for you to speak and listen to whatever you have to say that we might learn to listen and follow. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are starting a brand new series. Uh, Kind of, it's actually, for those of you who are new, it's actually like, uh, think of it like the third season in a long-running drama, a longer uh, series that we're, uh, it's on the book of Acts. And so the name of the series is called Sent Going Global. And, uh, and so what we've seen so far in this longer series of Acts is Acts is really the story of the early movement of Jesus. It starts off uh, right after the resurrection of Jesus. And kind of the author, Luke, kind of traces uh, the, the, the rapid growth and, uh, and spread of the early movement of Jesus from right after the resurrection, for the first 30 years, as the gospel moves all the way from Jerusalem rapidly uh, throughout the Roman Empire, all the way to the capital of Rome. And today we come to one of the most critical events, key events, uh, not only in the history of the, the church of Jesus, but also in the history of the world, with no exaggeration. And so um, there in your note sheet, you have a section called Sent Antioch and Beyond. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, your apps, let's go ahead and open up and turn on to Acts chapter 11. We're actually going to step back today. Last week we were in chapter 12. Before we move forward in Acts 13 with this new series, we need to step back and pick up something that we deliberately skipped over last week. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, Acts 11, we're going to pick it up at verse 19. And so this is sort of the backstory for this current series, this new series. So uh, those in, in verse 19, it says, those who are scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, uh, they travel as far north as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, right? So let's set the stage. Um, if you've been here throughout this longer series, you know that back in chapter 8, there was a major persecution that broke out against the Christ followers in Jerusalem. It caused thousands and thousands of Jesus followers to flee for their lives. And wherever they would go, as they would go, they would share the message of Jesus. And so uh, Luke is going back to that storyline. He's picking up that storyline. And what he says here is that uh, some of those have been scattered by that persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed. They travel as far north as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Now, today you're going to need your map, all right? So inside your program, um, you've got your map, and I want to get you oriented. Let's take a look at that. On the bottom right of your map, you see that area called Syria. Do you see that? It's kind of a province of Syria. Um, kind of about south of that, about 300 miles, is the city of Jerusalem. It's not shown on this map. But uh, so what he's saying is that when the Christ followers were caused to flee for their lives with persecution of Stephen in chapter 8, they went north. And he says, some went as far north as Cyprus. Do you see the island of Cyprus there? You find that on your map? Hello. All right. All right. This is uh, interactive time. All right. Okay. So you see Cyprus on your map. Yeah. Good. Good. All right. Now, if you were to go just to the right on your map of Cyprus, so we're going to go to the east, that coastline there would be Phoenicia. It'd be uh, the modern day area of Lebanon. And then if you just go up that coastline, you see that city called Antioch? Okay. Good. I'm the now, there's actually two Antiochs on this map. So this is Antioch of Syria, and this is the one we're going to be talking about today. So what, um, what Luke is telling us is as these believers, these, remember they're all Jewish, they're, um, they're, they're, they're spreading out this persecution, they're, uh, they're, they're sharing Jesus as they go, but notice at the end of verse 19, it says they're spreading the word only among whom? Hello? Okay, let's try again. So uh, they're spreading the word only among Jews. Okay, so yeah, so, and this is normal, right? This is what we've seen so far in Acts, that the movement of Jesus was completely Jewish to start off with. All the first Christians were Jews, and so we've seen in the last few weeks that the light is beginning to dawn, that God's vision is bigger than that. So if you've been here in the last series about Cornelius, 
uh, the coming of this first uh, Gentile Roman centurion to Jesus and his family, the coming of the Spirit. The early church is beginning to understand that the message of Jesus uh, as Messiah is not just for Israel, it's for the world, but it's still, this is still very new stuff. And they're living in a day and age. They don't have CNN. Um, they don't have uh, social media. And so, you know, this event happened in Caesarea with, with, uh, with Cornelius, and it, the church talked about it in Jerusalem, but for the most part, these Christians that are spread, um, it's not really affecting their approach, right? So as these Jewish Christ followers are going north, they're sharing Jesus, but only with Jews, all right? So in verse 20, uh, Luke says, however, some of them, however, men from Cyprus, that island we just looked at, and Cyrene, which was a city in northern Africa, a Greek city we'll talk about later, so not the Jerusalem conservative Jews, but these kind of outside-the-box thinkers, they went to Antioch, and they began to speak to whom? Greeks or Gentiles. Yeah, to, to Gentiles also. So this is crazy. This is the first time in history where the message of Jesus, as far as we know, in the, at least in the book of Luke, in the book of Acts, the first time that it's being shared intentionally with Gentiles. So it's one thing for the gospel to go to one Gentile, uh, Cornelius and his family. Uh, that's one thing. But this is now a whole start of a whole different movement. These are like crazy people. These are out-of-the-box thinkers. They're like, we'll come back to them later. But this is just like so coloring, so far outside the lines. Uh, no one would have thought about it. But they're like, hey, if Jesus works for us, we've heard about the story of Cornelius. Maybe it'll work for everybody. Let's give it a shot. And so sure enough, um, the Lord is in this. In verse 21, it says, uh, the Lord's hand was with them. And uh, so God's on the move, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So this is crazy, because this is the first time in human history, you now in this new Jesus community that is in Antioch, first time in history, you have Jews and Gentiles as a part of the same community. And this is just amazing, and we'll come back to it later. And so this is so crazy that when news of this hears the church in Jerusalem, verse 22, they're going to send someone to check it out. So you may even remember this. Back in chapter 8, when the gospel went to the Samaritans, crazy, they sent Peter and John as a special envoy to go check it out. This time they're going to send a man that we've met before in chapter 4 and chapter 9, amazing guy, tremendous leader named Barnabas. He's very high respected in Jerusalem. So Barnabas, um, they sent Barnabas to Anna, and when he arrives, he sees the grace of God. He sees that this is a true move of God. And uh, he was glad, he was really excited, and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And so they're probably beginning to experience some persecution. He's saying, hey, stick with this, I want to remain uh, true. Now, what's going on here is that you got this explosion, church growth explosion in Antioch. Barnabas is there, he's like, man, someone needs to stay and help teach these new believers. He's starting to feel overwhelmed. It's like in a rapidly growing church. It's like pretty soon staff is burning out, there's not enough leaders. So he's like, I need to go find another pastor. So the person he thinks of is a man we met back in chapter 7 and 8. His name is Saul of Tarsus. So if you were here there, uh, Saul was the leader of the persecution against Christ's followers in Jerusalem. And then he has encounters in chapter 9, he encounters the resurrected Jesus, a total game-changer experience. He becomes a follower of Jesus. Three years later, Barnabas takes him to Jerusalem to introduce him to the apostles and, and vouch for him. This was a true conversion. But when Paul starts sharing the message in Jerusalem, his life is in danger. And after just about two weeks, he has to flee for his life. And he goes home back to Tarsus. So there on your map, just to get oriented, Tarsus is in the province of Cilicia. So right above Cyprus, you have the province of Cilicia. These are Roman provinces. And sort of on the right side of that, there's a city named Tarsus. It's not on your map, but it's right in that area. So it's only about 80 miles from Antioch of Syria via the sea, via, uh, you know, if, you're, if you're taking a ship. And so, um, so Barnabas thinks, you know what, I need to get Saul. He would be awesome in this, uh, this, this kind of this ministry. And so in verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Like I said, 80-mile journey. And when he finds him, he brings him back to Antioch. And so for a whole year now... Barnabas and Saul, they're going to meet with the church, and they're going to teach great numbers of people, right? So you're like pastoring this church. And so then uh, Luke throws in this little sidebar, the disciples, remember all through Acts, 
we've seen the most common name for Jesus' followers is disciples, right? And so the disciples were first called Christians um, at Antioch. Now, this is interesting because we think of Christians as a very common term. Even in the book of Acts, it's the only time we're going to see it. Um, that, uh, so in the, in the ancient world, like think in the nation of Israel or the area of Israel, um, you'd have followers of Herod, King Herod, would be called Herodians. So here in Antioch, um, people are, this, this new group, they're always talking about Jesus and how he's King Jesus, which uh, in Greek would be Christos, you know, Christ Jesus. Uh, he's uh, the, the Messiah, Christ is Messiah, right? So, so they're always talking about how Jesus is Christ or King, and so people start calling him Christians, just like Herodians, right? All right, so then in, uh, in verse 27, so about this time, there's some prophets, though these are uh, would be uh, men, maybe women, we don't know, but men and women who are coming down from the church of Jerusalem, 300 miles, and they're sending some people down to do some ministry, and these people have supernatural gifts of prophecy. And so uh, one of these guys' names is Agabus. We'll meet him later in Luke again, I mean in Acts again. And one of them's named Agabus. He stands up, and through the Spirit, he predicts that a severe famine is going to be coming in the whole Roman world. Now, in the ancient world, this was big time. And today, if there's famine somewhere, we just ship in food from somewhere else. In the ancient world, when there's famine, a major famine, people die. People starve. It's a big deal. And so he prophesies this. And Luke says, um, hey, this actually happened. That was fulfilled in the reign of Claudius, who is the Roman emperor that reigned from 54, or from 45 to 54 AD. And so um, he says, this happened during that reign of Claudius. So this whole scene here is probably taken around 46 AD. And so uh, the disciples there in Antioch, as each one was able, they decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. So this is interesting, but in the early church, and we'll see it throughout the New Testament, the church in Jerusalem and the church in that surrounding area of Judea was very poor. And we honestly, we don't know why. We don't know why, if it's because they gave away all their stuff when the movement first started. We don't know if it's because of persecution, it happened later, or just the general economy of the area. But for whatever reason, throughout the news, they're always poor. And so the Apostle Paul is often raising funds from his Gentile churches to help support his poor Jewish brothers in that area. And so they raise this, that's uh, kind of an initiative for the poor, like we do here, right? So they do an initiative for the poor. They raise this money, and then they're going to send it, their gift, it says verse 30, to the elders uh, in Jerusalem by Barnabas and Saul. So they're going to take this team, and Barnabas and Saul are going to lead this team, take the money up there. Now, okay, so then Luke now is going to move into chapter 12. And in chapter 12, he's going to kind of do a sidebar. Hey, meanwhile, during this general era of time in Jerusalem, persecution is increasing. Last week, we covered this, right? Uh, Dre covered this. So uh, James, the apostle, is arrested and executed. Peter is arrested, thrown in prison, and then miraculously released. Uh, uh, King Herod dies when he claims to be a god. And so that's chapter 12. And at the last verse of chapter 12, let's jump ahead. Uh, in verse 25, it says, When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, so Luke is going back that storyline of Barnabas and Saul, when he finished their mission to, in other words, to Jerusalem, they returned from Jerusalem, and they brought with them a man named John, also called Mark. We met him last week in Jerusalem, John Mark. Uh, author probably of the Gospel of Mark. He'll become an important player later on, and that's why he's being introduced now. Okay, and so, so everything we just did is backstory. <laughs> All right? Everything we just covered is just kind of backstory for today. Um, so what we know now is, is today as we enter into chapter 13, we're ready for the message of Jesus to go global. It's a whole, it's gonna be, an event's going to happen in chapter 13 that's going to change the course of world history and church history. And so it's an amazing event, and so now we're set up for it. First of all, we know how the gospel got to Antioch. We know it got there by these crazy, out-of-the-box thinkers that decided to share Jesus with not just Jews, but Gentiles. We know that the church of Antioch was a historic church, destined to become one of the most important churches in the movement of Jesus, and it's the first church to be made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And we also know that two of the key leaders of the church are Paul and Barnabas. And so now we're set up, we got the backstory, and we're just going to cover four verses today as we look at this amazing plan. So it says in uh, amazing action, so in verse uh, 1, it says, now at the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And so there were several people that had these spiritual gifts of prophecy and teaching. These were leaders, probably like our pastors, something like that. And so he's going to list five of them. And uh, these five, we know two, we know Barnabas and Saul, but he's going to give us three more. And he said, so... Uh, 
So we have Barnabas, we know him, and there's a man named Simeon, who's also called Niger. We'll come back to that later. Uh, there's a guy named Lucius of Cyrene, that's that city in northern Africa, a Greek city. And then there's a guy named Manan, who's been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. We'll come back and talk about Manan. And then there's Saul, and we know who Saul is, right? And so these five men are at a, like a, a prayer and worship retreat. Um, so we're not sure how this really went, how, you know, where this was. I know sometimes here at Senior Pastors, we'll get away just for a time of prayer, planning, uh, seeking God, whatever. And uh, it may be something like that. But there are these five leaders, and they're, uh, they're kind of set aside time to really seek God. We don't know what for. We don't know if they're asking God for direction for the future. We're not really sure. But they're fasting, they're praying, they're worshiping. They're seeking God, right? And so this is the number one job of leaders, whether it's you're a leader of a family, uh, you're a leader of a company, uh, you're a leader of a life group, you're a leader of your kids. Number one job of leadership is to seek God for his vision, right? And so that's what they're doing. They're seeking God. And, uh, and so verse 2, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and they were fasting, the Holy Spirit speaks. Now, the Holy Spirit's a little bit like E.F. Hutton in the old commercials. For those of you who are old enough to remember that. Uh, when the Holy Spirit speaks in Acts, everything changes. Because these believers are tuned in. They have learned to listen and follow. And the Holy Spirit is the driver of the movement of Jesus, isn't he? Like the Holy Spirit, everything depends on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that causes us to be born again. The Holy Spirit is the one who transforms our lives. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens hearts to hear the message of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one who, who leads and directs his church. Without the Holy Spirit, we are nothing. And one of the things you see in the book of Acts is that when the Spirit speaks, things happen. Uh, when the Spirit speaks, these critical moments in church history. You remember back in chapter 8 when the Holy Spirit spoke to Philip, run and catch up with that chariot. I'll tell you what to do. You remember in chapter 10 where the Holy Spirit spoke to Peter, there are three men downstairs. Go and go with them. Don't be afraid. Here we see again, the Holy Spirit's going to speak. At a critical moment in church history, the Holy Spirit is going to uh, kind of log on and speak. Now, probably through one of these prophets. We don't know for sure, but very likely that it was through one of these prophets, probably not Paul and Barnabas, because the prophecy is about Paul and Barnabas. So probably it was either Manan or Simeon or these other guys that they get a word from the Lord. And uh, we're not sure, but that kind of seems how, how it would work. And so um, the Holy Spirit's going to speak, and he says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. He says, I want you to take two of the brightest and best, your key leaders, pastors of this church, that have been here kind of the last several years leading this church. I want you to take two of your brightest and best. I have a new assignment. And as a church, I want you to gather around. I want you to lay their hands on them. On, on them. I want to commission them for this new adventure. And so that's exactly what's going to happen. So after they had fasted and prayed, they finished this time of fasting and prayer. They, these leaders, it may have been the church leaders, it may have been the elders, it may have been the whole church. We don't really know. But they, uh, they fasted, they fasted, they, they placed their hands on them, and they send them off. Now, where are they going? Well, in verse 4, it says the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Catch that. Uh, they, they went down to Seleucia, which was the seaport of Antioch, and then on to Cyprus. So let's look at our map again. So on this map, um, you're going to see that they're, they're in Antioch. Seleucia is the seaport. They go down to Seleucia. They're going to sail from there down to Salamis on the island of Cyprus. And you see these arrows. And what these arrows represent is their journey that's going to take place over the next 18 months to two years. And what's going to happen is um, it's, this is traditionally called Paul's first missionary tour. And that sounds way too churchy for me. So I like to call it as... Paul's first Jesus-sharing tour, right? So he is going to go, I think of like a rock band, you know, going from place to place. He's going to go, and, and these courageous uh, first followers of Jesus, Paul and Barnabas, are going to take John Mark with them. They're going to go, and I want you to catch, they're going to share the message of Jesus where it has never been shared before. They're going to break new ground. It's going to be dangerous. It's going to be hard. It's going to be amazing. God's going to intervene in crazy ways. And we're going to watch what happens 
when these two guys listen and follow what God's called them to do, sent out by the Holy Spirit. And so in this series, we'll be spending most of our time um, in this first missionary journey, this first uh, 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 journey, first uh, Jesus sharing tour. But what I want to do today is I want to, uh, uh, as we kick off this new series, I want to highlight kind of five really important principles that flow out of this passage about the mission and the movement of Jesus and for us what it means to be part of that movement when we come to Jesus. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Sent Going Global, Five Important Lessons. Let's jump in. The first thing that jumps out at me is that Luke wants us to understand is that the movement is missional. This movement of Jesus is missional. Now, we saw this. If you were here the very first week of Acts, we, we talked about how Acts is missional. But I want to kind of revisit it because we are now at a major turning point. We're about halfway through the story, halfway through the book of Acts. And now that we're here halfway, we have a much better perspective to understand what I'm talking about when I say Acts is missional, when I talk about um, the, the, the movement is missional. What, what I mean by this is that the movement of Jesus is always expanded. The movement of Jesus is never static. It never says enough. It never gets to a point and says, okay, that's far enough. Enough, pe- enough people have been reached. The movement of Jesus from day one was designed to cover the face of the earth. Right? And so until that happens, the movement is moving forward. As long as there's one person who hasn't heard about Jesus, the movement is going to be moving forward. It's at its core missional, always growing, always expanding, always taking more ground. And catch this, any believer who is not missional is not healthy. That any time that we become satisfied with our lives, that I know Jesus and I have this great church and I'm part of this life group and I've got this good family and so, so I'm just happy the way life is and I'm not really too concerned with those out there who don't know that that is a sure sign that we have become sick and lost the vision. Because the heart of Jesus is always to reach those who've not heard. It's missional at the core. Now, you see this throughout Acts. In fact, Jesus said this back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You know, right before he ascends into heaven, he leaves. Uh, he calls his followers together, and there on your note sheet, you'll see it. In Acts 1 verse 8, he says, listen, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So he says, for this assignment, this mission I'm given, you're going to need some power. Um, don't even think about leaving Jerusalem without it. You know, don't, don't leave home without him. Uh, and so you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. That's kind of your assignment. And it's going to start in Jerusalem, and then it's going to go to where? Where are the next two places? Judea and Samaria. And then it's going to go where? The ends of the earth. And so catch, this is Jesus' agenda for his, his movement, right? So when you become part of the movement of Jesus, you become part of this agenda. Now, this is exactly, if you think of it, this is like an outline of the book of Acts, uh, the first seven chapters, we watched as the mission, the movement of Jesus got launched and grew rapidly in Jerusalem, right? First chapter, uh, first seven chapters. Then in chapter eight, major persecution spread, uh, hits. And the next two chapters, chapter eight and nine, uh, Luke tells us how the gospel sped, spread to Judea and the Samaria. Okay? That's second part two. And then um, when we get to chapter 10 and 11, we have this uh, account of the conversion of Cornelius and his, his Gentile family, which paves the way for the movement to go global, okay? a key, key turning point. And so what happens today, as Luke picks up the account in chapter 11, he says those who were spread from the, the uh, persecution with Stephen, they went as far north as Cyprus and Phoenicia and Antioch. They're traveling north, and there's these crazy believers that share Jesus in Antioch, and then that creates this first uh, cross-cultural church of Jesus. And then from Antioch, the Holy Spirit says, now it's time to go to the world. You see, we're going to go global. And so what I want you to catch is that when a man or woman comes to Jesus, when you came to Jesus, that you became part of a movement. It's not just about you and God. It's about you and me and us together with Jesus. And as part of his movement, 
the movement of Jesus is always designed to reach out, to go where it's never gone before, to spread the message, and that's what it means to be part of this movement. And so uh, when we become a follower of Jesus, this becomes part of our core calling. It's part of our core calling as a church is to kind of listen and follow because we know the Holy Spirit is always going to be leading us on to new territory, right? So catch this. So any church that loses that vision is a sick church. Can I tell you something that one of the most uh, depressing may be too strong. I use that word. At times it's depressing. But other times it's just like, uh, crud. One of the most depressing times of my week is Sunday morning. Now, it's not because of you. Right? It's because of 11. Uh, no, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> now, the reason is, is because every Sunday morning, I live in Simi Valley, every Sunday morning, I get on the 118, and I'm there pretty much by myself. I'm sure it doesn't matter what freeway you're coming. It's probably a little busier on the 405, or you know, if you're coming to 118, or up to 5, or whatever, but, but Sunday morning is the least traveled time the whole week. And the reason it depresses me is that these freeways should be full of people going to worship. Can I tell you something? That we measure the size of churches the wrong way. Sometimes people will say, that church is too big. It doesn't really matter. You know, it can be a church of 50, it grew to 100. It's too big. You know, be a church of 10,000 goes to 10, it's to become too big. But people say, churches become too big. We measure churches by the number of people who attend. God measures his kingdom by how many people do not attend. So when God looks at the church of Simi Valley or Los Angeles, he doesn't see how many people are in church. He sees how many people are not in church. How can you ever say a church is too large when there are 2 million people in the San Fernando Valley that are not anywhere today? You see? We have forgotten the vision. So as followers of Jesus, anytime we lose our edge, that we're part of a movement, and we are called to help bring people to Jesus, and we're all going to do it in different ways. We're not all upfront people. Some of us are behind-the-scenes people. We have different gifts. Um, but when you come to Jesus, that part of your core calling is use your time, precious time, your resources, your precious resources, your life experience, your spiritual gifts to help build the movement of Jesus into a juggernaut that reaches people for Christ, expands the kingdom of God, and then brings people in who are hurt and lonely and lost into a kingdom that's a foretaste of the new kingdom and creation that's coming. Amen? Amen. All right, so... That's the first thing we're going to see in the series. And so number two, the second thing I love about this passage is it reminds us that this movement is for everyone. Uh, we've seen it now. We've seen this in Acts, right? We've watched it the last few weeks as the light begins to dawn on these first followers of Jesus through Cornelius and through Peter that the message of Jesus is not just for Jews. It's for the world. And as these first um, kind of daring believers go to Antioch and begin sharing the message of Jesus, not just with Jews, but with Gentiles. The first time in world history, you have a community of Jesus that's made up of people from all kinds of backgrounds. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome was number one. Alexandria and Egypt was number two. Number three was Antioch. Historians tell us population was approximately 500,000 people. It was a place where East met West, very cosmopolitan. And so when the message of Jesus got shared there, people from all different kinds of backgrounds, educational, racial, religious, social, economic, geographic, are coming together for the first time in history under the authority of the true King Jesus. This has been God's vision for his church from day one. Some of you will remember this back in Ephesians, when we were in our study, an epic. But God's vision, and Paul unpacks this in Ephesians 2, that from beginning of time, he chose Israel 
not to keep them separate for the long term for the rest of the world. He chose Israel to be separate for a season so that through them he could bring his word, reveal himself, bring the Messiah. But the whole point was that one day that wall that was, that was built up between Israel and the rest of the world that was required to create a people and a nation, that one day that wall, which was the law, circumcision, food laws that would separate, that one day that wall would be broken down. And God would create, catch this, the third humanity. Neither Jews nor Gentiles, but this new humanity of King Jesus the new creation, the forerunners of the new creation that would one day rule with him forever. That's been his vision. Paul says in Ephesians, before time began. And right here in Antioch, for the first time in human history, we see the first installment of the vision of God. We see people coming from all different kinds of backgrounds. Jews, God-fearers, pagan Gentiles coming together, all different kinds of backgrounds, this new community of Jesus. And this has been his vision from the start. You see it here in this passage, it's easy to read over verse 1 really rapidly because it's just a bunch of names that are hard to pronounce. But let me go back, and I want to, this kind of diversity that you see in the church, and it's reflected in their leadership. So the church at Antioch, they're prophets and teachers, so let's run through these. So first guy is Barnabas. Now you may forget this, but Barnabas grew up on the island of Cyprus. So he's what we call a diaspora Jew, not grew up in Israel, kind of a you know, little bit more liberal Jew probably. And he, uh, he was from the tribe of Levi, which was the tribe of the uh, kind of that served at the temple. Right? And then he moved to Jerusalem, key member of the, of the Jewish church. So he's a Jewish guy, but kind of diaspora Jew. Right? Uh, the second person that we have here is a guy named Simeon called Niger. Now we don't know a lot about Simeon. We don't know if he's Gentile or Jew. But we do know what his name means. Niger means black. And so we're almost sure that this man was a black man. So now we have different races, kind of come, or different ethnic backgrounds coming together in this leadership team. Right? And so then we have, uh, the next guy is Lucius of Cyrene. Now again, we don't know everything about him, but Cyrene was a Greek city in northern Africa. So very Hellenistic culture, very Greek culture, very different, say, culture in Jerusalem. And whether he's Jew or Gentile, we don't know. But he's from uh, Africa, very likely another black man. We don't know, but very likely. Okay? The, thir- the fourth man, this is fascinating, a guy named Menaean. Now, he'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, like Dre mentioned last week, he did a great job, is there are many Herods in the New Testament. It gets confusing, right? So the first Herod was Herod the Great. For those of you who've been to Israel, he's the builder, right? Builds Caesarea, builds Masada. Uh, builds uh, the temple in Jerusalem that we see. So uh, the foundation stones and all. So um, that's Herod the Great. He's the start of the Herod. He has many sons, but three sons uh, are important to go on to rule after, he, after him. His kingdom is divided, three sons. The most important for our purpose is the guy who rules Galilee in the north. That guy's name is Herod Antipas. Right? Now, he's the guy that beheaded John the Baptist. He's the guy that uh, Jesus' trial... Uh, was mocking him, that Herod. Okay, that's the Herod here. Okay? So that Herod who killed John the Baptist, that's this guy. So Manan, one of these church leaders uh, in Antioch, he had been brought up with, and in the Greek it's hard to know exactly, but it, where he, we think it means like a foster brother or adopted brother. He's been brought up with Herod. So think Herod's a prince. Herod's being brought up uh, in temples. He's been brought up the top of the social economic pyramid. He is probably the best education, highly cultured guy. This is Manan. Manan's brought up very likely in the palace, a higher echelon social economic authority. Herod goes on to mock Jesus. Manan goes on to be a leader in the church of Jesus. And then the last person we have here <coughs> is Saul. And we forget this, but Saul... Saul was raised in the university city of Tarsus in Cilicia. Uh, when he was uh, fairly young, probably a teenager, moved to, uh, moved to Jerusalem to study under the leading uh, Jewish scholar, rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. It's like going to Harvard of the day. Uh, and then he becomes the lead persecutor of the whole movement of Jesus. Now he knows Jesus. He's one of the leaders. Right, can you see the diversity on this team? You've got this 
uh, Jewish guy that grew up in Cyprus. You've got uh, a, a black man. We don't know where, where he's from. We've got uh, another guy from a North Africa, Greek culture. You've got a guy who's grown up in a palace, top of the social economic spectrum. And you've got Saul, who is uh, coming from a very conservative Jewish Pharisee background. And Jesus has called them from all over the world to come here to lead the church at Antioch. And what I want you to catch is that at the church at Antioch, it was an amazing cross-cultural movement of Jesus. This is his vision. I was thinking, I just mentioned last night, in my life group, we have several African-Americans in my life group. We've got a lady that's from Indonesia in our life group. We've got a, a lady from Colombia in our life group. We've got a lady, lady from Puerto Rico in our life group. Then we have a few white people. And, <laughs> and some of us came to Jesus early in life and grew up in Christian homes. Some of us came to Jesus uh, much later. Some grew up pretty straight people, other people wild child. I mean, we've got the mix. And when our life group gets together, it is awesome because Jesus has brought us from all different backgrounds, and he has rescued us and saved us, and he's creating. We have in my life group every Tuesday night, we have a precursor of the kingdom of God. We have right there in that life group, we have a manifestation of the kingdom of God under the leadership of King Jesus. We gather every Tuesday night and say, King Jesus, we are here. We're part of your kingdom. You brought it from every nation, every globe. You brought it, and we are your church, you see? And one of the things I love about what God's doing at Rocky Peak is that with every passing year, he is creating a greater diversity. And you see it every way, socioeconomically, educationally, uh, background, life experience, racially, church backgrounds. God is creating his community of passionate Christ followers from every different kind of background. And that is his vision. That's his vision. All right. So it's for everyone. The third, the, third, um, the third point is that this movement breaks the rules. Now, I kind of love this. There's a little bit. I have to admit, there's a little bit of rebellion in my heart. Um, and, uh, and so I love this, but this movement of Jesus is going to break rules. And you see, this, uh, you see this in these crazy believers that go north to Antioch and share Jesus with non-Jews. Now, to get how out of the box this is, it's hard for us today to really understand this, but just remember back. Do you remember back when Peter first went to see Cornelius, chapter 11? Remember what he said to him when he gets there? I mean, God's told him to go, like he has to go. And when he gets there, the first thing he says is, you know, we both know this is illegal for me to be in your house. Remember when Peter goes back to Jerusalem? to kind of defend his actions, the Jewish believers, his colleagues, pulled him aside and said, what are you thinking? Remember what he said? You went into the house of Gentiles? You ate with Gentiles? Are you crazy? Like, are you picking up how out of the box this is? So it's one thing from Peter's like, oh, wait, 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 wait. God told me, the Holy Spirit told me, I had a vision, he has a vision, the Holy Spirit came, they're like, okay. Right. But I mean, he's got to pull out the big guts to defend what he does. But I love this, you have this group of daring Christ followers at the very forefront of the movement of Jesus that said, hey, Jesus has changed our lives. And uh, we've heard about what happened to Cornelius, and what the heck, let's give it a shot. Let's share Jesus with Greeks. Let's see what God can do with Greeks. And the Lord's hand was with them. And so they were out-of-the-box thinkers. They were paradigm breakers. Um, they were outside-the-line colorers. They went where, the, where people had never gone before. And as a result, the message of Jesus expands. F.F. Um, F. Bruce is one of my favorite New Testament scholars. He's now with the Lord. But... Uh, in his commentary on Acts, this is how he describes, it's a little academic, but that's the way academic guys are. So he says, um, he says, the idea that the gospel could have any relevance for non-Jews was not one that would naturally occur to them. But in Antioch, some daring spirits, and I love that, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, not from Jerusalem, conservative hometown, they took a momentous step forward. 
if the gospel was so good for Jews, might it not be good for Gentiles also? At any rate, they would make the experiment. And I love this. And what you see is that I think it's no accident that the church of Antioch was the church God chose to send Paul and Barnabas out of. It wasn't the church of Jerusalem. They were too stuck in their ways. They may have understood and agree with Peter and okay, but they're not going to send messengers to, God, to, to, to Gentile. It's too much out of the box. But these first believers that go to Antioch, they're out-of-the-box thinkers, and they create a church that's for the first time in history made up of Jews and Gentiles, and that becomes part of their DNA as a church. You know, there's some churches that are out-of-the-box thinkers, and there's some churches that aren't. The church of Antioch was an out-of-the-box church. They, they thought out-of-the-box, and it was part of their DNA from the beginning. It's how they were birthed. And so it makes perfect sense that when the Holy Spirit wants to reach the world, he's going to come to the leaders of the church of Antioch. And so I want you to do out there what you've done here. And they're going to break paradigms. They're going to break rules. And what we're going to see in this series is that for the first time in history, Paul and Barnabas are going to go out, they're going to share with both Jews and Gentiles, and they're going to duplicate what's happened at Antioch. They're going to have to create churches that are made up of people from all different backgrounds. And so what you see, <clears throat> I think of Antioch as like the R&D department of the Church of Jesus. And throughout history, there are leaders and churches that are chosen by God to be part of the R&D for the movement of Jesus. They go where no one's gone before. They do unorthodox things, usually highly criticized at first. Then after they do it, within years, become normative. Uh, let me give you some examples. Um, <clears throat> in the late 1700s, there was a man named William Carey. <clears throat> and he became the, we call him the father of the modern mission movement. Now, <clears throat> today it's very normal to think of missionaries going out. But in the end of the 1700s, it wasn't normal at all. In fact, it was very abnormal. And so uh, missionaries didn't go out, didn't share Jesus, didn't happen. There weren't anything such missionaries. And so God begins to burden Carrie's heart to share Jesus in these parts of the world where he's never been shared. You know, Africa and, me and uh, uh, India and things like that. And so he begins to share his passion. And you know what? People told him he was crazy. In fact, it's reported that when he was first sharing this with a group of ministers, one, he was a young man at the time, which, you know, often out of the box people are young. Uh, they don't know any better. Um, <laughs> and so that's how the movement of Jesus grows, by people who don't know any better. And so, uh, so he, stands, uh, he shares in this meeting his vision to reach unlost people. And one of the older pastors stands up, and he literally tells him, young man, sit down. When God wants to reach the heathen, he won't need you or my help. William Carey was an out-of-the-box thinker. He said, I'm going to India. And he launched a movement. And the reason the gospel is worldwide today is largely because of William Carey, out of the box. I think of John Wesley. You know, John Wesley was a young Anglican Church of England pastor, but didn't know Jesus back in the 1700s. He comes to know Jesus, and he starts preaching Jesus at church. And not very many people knew Jesus. They knew church. They didn't know Jesus. And he gets kicked out of the Church of England. And so what do you do? I mean, in those days, I mean, pastors were serious, right? They looked like pastors. They didn't look like me. Right? They, I mean, they've got frocks, they got the collar, they stand up on huge podiums, you know, kind of rule over their kingdom, and that's what it was. And so when he gets kicked out, it's like, what is it? I still have to change, share Jesus. So he does the unthinkable. He begins sharing Jesus in open field meetings. And people criticize him like crazy. You can't do church outside. And then hundreds and thousands and thousands of people started coming to Christ, and other open-air preachers start, I mean, and a whole revival happens, and George Whitfield, and all these things happen, because out-of-the-box thinker. I think in our own age, I think when Billy Graham, that's so highly regarded now, but when Billy Graham first started, how much criticism he received for his methodology, large group events, uh, special music, uh, bringing in celebrities who come to Jesus to share their testimony. So highly critical. Uh, I think of Young Life. It works with, you know, high school students and now others. Well, so high school students 
that didn't know Jesus, far from God, would never go to church, started using unorthodox ways. Their motto was, we believe it's a sin to bore kids with the gospel. I think of uh, Chuck Smith uh, in the Jesus movement, the start of Calvary Chapels. And I think uh, uh, back in the late 60s and 70s, and, and, and so just crazy things. He said you could, he didn't care what you looked like when you came to church. You'd come with your long hair. You could come with your uh, flip-flops. Um, you could uh, wear jeans. Uh, you, 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 crazy things. Uh, and uh, you could just come as you were. And he would use rock music and, and rock music bands to share the message. And people would say, it's of the devil. Um, I think uh, uh, of a church today, one of the largest churches in America, some of you know of it, it's called Life Church TV. They, they, they're creators of the version app that many of us use. Um, but I think of one of their core, God's used them in amazing ways. And they've done a lot of you know, digital campuses around the country, but also uh, online campuses, things that sometimes have been criticized for. But I love their motto. Here's their motto. We will do anything short of sin to reach people with the gospel. Love that. Sign me up, right? Sign me up. Love that. And so throughout history, God uses out-of-the-box thinkers, people that are, are willing to break the rules of man, the traditions to reach people for Jesus. I think of our own church here. I think of some of our crazy Antioch people here, <clears throat> people that God is calling on their own. That's not a church program. They're just listening and following. Um, I, I think of um, two men that I had uh, that I had uh, coffee with back in the fall, maybe last uh, summer, I can't remember exactly when, Starbucks, and uh, they wanted to share with me that these are two guys, kind of businessmen, they're mid-30s, just sharp guys. God just put it on their heart. They want to share Christ with, with people. They don't really know how to do that in this day and age, right? It's just, and so they began experimenting, going to college campuses, going to malls, and just offering, going up to people they don't even know, and saying, hey, we're just here praying for people today. Is there anything you'd like prayer for? And it's amazing how disarming that's been and the stories that they've told and the conversations it's led to. Very positive experience. Um, I think of uh, last week I heard about one of our life group leaders. Sharp guy. One of, just a fantastic group. Great leader. He's been for years. And uh, I heard recently last week he's stepping down from leading his life group, turning it over to someone else. And uh, the reason he just feels like God's stirring his heart to reach his neighborhood for Christ. He doesn't know how to do that, but he just feels God's calling him. So he's, gonna, he's kind of planning to maybe try some potlucks in his neighborhood, just get his neighborhood together, and then maybe out of that to launch an evangelistic Bible study. I saw him last Friday night at the gathering, the life group gathering, and I said, hey, I heard about this. And he said, yeah, I, I really don't know what I'm doing. I just felt God's put it in my heart. I just got to listen and follow. Um, I thought about the, a woman who uh, a while back just felt like God was calling her to go to a secular drug and alcohol treatment center and start a Bible study for some of the women there. And then she started bringing some to Rocky Peak. Um, I, I think of the man who uh, has gone back to the juvenile hall that he used to be a part of when he was growing up and started a Bible study every week to share Jesus with these young men who are so lost and, and so need of some direction. I think of uh, one of our college students that kind of initiated a ministry to the homeless in L.A. that should not only take down blankets and food, but she would build relationship with these people to have conversation. These are our crazy ones, Amen. right? These are our Antioch followers, that, and I'm sure there's many more out there. That Some of you, like, God is putting something in your heart. It's, it's out of the box. It's like, have you ever seen it done? No, never seen it done. Do you have any models? No. Is it part of what your church does? No. But God is stirring your heart. He's giving you a vision to share Jesus in out-of-the-box ways. For others of us here, it's not out of the box. It's just normal ways, right? For some of you here, the next step for you as you listen and follow may be to make the decision to stop being a secret agent Christian. Amen. Some of us are like double agents. <laughs> we come to church and we're with Jesus, you know, and then we go to work and we just, we pretend to be something that we're not. And I'm not talking about being crazy I'm just talking about, you would never mention that, hey, what'd you do last night? Oh, I was at my life group. You would never mention that at work because you're afraid they might ask what a life group is. You would never, hey, with, how was week? It was awesome. We had amazing service at church. You, you would never say that because then that would lead to other questions. You're not prepared for that. You're kind of a secret agent Christian, right? And maybe it's here because you're fear, afraid they're going to ask questions you don't know or you're afraid of persecution or you're afraid of whatever, but 
But Jesus said, the next step for you is to be, hey, just stop being a secret agent. Just love people and be who you are. For others of us here, it might be more intentionality. We often talk about one lives here. A one life is, is someone that God has put on your heart, that he's already working in their life, and he's just putting on your heart that you'd come alongside and partner with them. Do you pray regularly for their salvation? That you'd invest in real, honest relationship, you'd love them well. So that in the context of real and honest relationships, sooner or later they're going to ask. They're going to ask about church, ask about your faith, they're going to ask about what, something. And when they ask you, just share a little of your story, what God's done in your life, a little of God's story about you, and just invite them to come and see. And God's just saying, hey, that's your next step. For some of you, the next step may be that, that he wants to expose you to what Jesus is doing globally. And he's going to call you to step out of your comfort zone and go to one of our global ministry adventures. Like right now, I've got a team in Tanzania. And it's crazy. They're out there sharing Jesus in a Muslim village that's never heard the message of Jesus before. Crazy, right? They're listening and following. There's some of our Antioch crazy people, right? right? You see what I'm saying? And so what I want you to catch is that, that when the Holy Spirit's leading, he will cause us to break out of the rules, break out of old paradigms, stretch ourselves. And our job is simply to listen and follow when he does that. Number four. The fourth principle is that this movement is supernatural. And this is so important to remember. You know, sometimes when we're sharing Jesus, we take way too much responsibility for the results. Like, we feel like if I could just share Jesus in the right way, if I could just put the right words, if I could just think of the right book, if I could just give them the right sermon or the right podcast or something, if I, if I could just put exact, then they're going to come to Jesus, you know? And we take way too much responsibility. We've talked about this throughout this series. You see it all the way through Acts. Is that salvation supernatural? No one comes to Jesus on their own. It's always a work of God. So our job is not to convince someone. Our job is not to convert someone. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is just to listen and follow and share what he, he puts on our heart to do. And I love that because if you look at this passage, it's just like Luke, he just drips us all through. But in verse 21, where he talks about these crazy believers that went to Anak, he says, the Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed. Why they believed? Because they were so brilliant? No, because the Lord's hand was with them. It's a supernatural thing. Look at 24, verse 24. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Great number of people were brought to the Lord. Catch it? A great number of people were brought to the Lord. But you know what it says in the Greek? It doesn't say a great number of people were brought to the Lord. It says a great number of people were added to the Lord. Well, the question is, who's doing the adding? You see, in Acts, adding is like a technical term for Luke. It starts off in chapter 2. If you look there on your note sheet, back in the first time he used it was in chapter 2, and he's talking about the, the rapid growth of the early church in Jerusalem. The Lord added to their number daily who were being, those who were being saved. Who added them? Okay, four people, good. Who added them? The Lord. the Lord added them. The apostles didn't add them. The apostles just shared what God had told them to share. The Lord added them. And if your nephew, if your son-in-law, if your co-worker, if your son, or if your daughter, if the person on your softball team, if they're going to come to the Lord, it's not going to be because you add them. It's going to be because the Lord adds them. And yet he's going to use us as part of the process. So we're an important part. So our job, listen, follow, and then trust God with the results. And if we don't do this, the movement becomes heavy because we start taking it upon ourselves to convert the world. It's not our job to convert the world. Our job is to love Jesus, love people, share what he tells us to share, and then we're going to let the Lord do what he does best. And then... The last principle is that this movement is God's vision. And I love this. Something we talk about often here at Rocky Peak is that vision comes from the Lord. Like our job, whether it's for our own life or for our church, our job is not to create vision and ask God to bless it. Our job is to receive vision and listen and follow. And you see that this is one of the most critical moments in world history here. And the reason is because if Paul and Barnabas had not gone out, 
not only would the gospel not have gone to these new areas, but catch this, the letters that we have in our New Testament would not have been written. There would have been no one to write them to. And you say, what would have happened to the movement of Jesus and to world history if the New Testament hadn't been written? You say, it's like, this is a critical moment in world history. And guess whose idea it was? Was it the leadership at Antioch getting away and whiteboarding out strategy? No. It was the leadership at Antioch going before the Lord, worshiping, prayer, fasting, And in that context, the Holy Spirit spoke. You see, the Holy Spirit has a vision for his movement. He's got a vision for your life. You don't have to come up with a vision for your life. In fact, if you have a vision for your life that's not from the Holy Spirit, it's not going to work anyway. It's a lousy vision. The only vision that's worth having is God's vision for your life. And the only vision worth having as a church is God's vision for Rocky Peak. Can I tell you something? When I first came to Rocky Peak, and I was in the interview process, the elders, the candidate, they asked me, if you come to Rocky Peak, what's your vision for this church? I told them, I don't have a vision for this church. What I can tell you is my values. These won't change. But vision comes from the Lord. And if I come to Rocky Peak, it's not about my vision. It's about us together as a leadership team discerning what is God's vision for this church. And when you see that here, you see it here in Acts, is that the Holy Spirit has a vision for his church. And you see it all through Acts at critical junctures for the Holy Spirit. This is the next step. This is the next step. Our job, whether it's individually in our lives or as a church, is to simply listen and follow. And that's what they did. They went away, they sought the Lord, they heard from the Lord, and then they listened and followed. Look at verse 3 and 4, 13, 3 and 4. So after the Holy Spirit speaks, after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. And then catch this, the two of them sent on their way by whom? The Holy Spirit. You go, no, 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 the church sent them. They just laid their hands. No, no. They were just following what the Holy Spirit had already chosen to do. They were just kind of acting out and initiating the Holy Spirit's vision. They were not sent primarily by the church at Antioch. They were sent by the Holy Spirit. And that sending was affirmed by the church at Antioch. And so for us, whether it's in our own personal lives, whether it's as a church, whether it's in your life group, you lead a kid's ministry here. You lead first impressions. You serve in global ministries. The question is not what's your vision. The question is what is the Holy Spirit's vision? And as long together as a church, we remember what our calling is to live missional lives. And we listen and follow the Holy Spirit. That he will continue to unleash a movement of passionate Christ followers. Amen? <laughs> Amen. Let's pray. God, we're just excited. And uh, we're excited to be here. And we're excited for your vision for this planet. God, and we're just thankful that we don't have to create it. We just have to receive it. And so, God, as we... Come now as we worship, as we bring our offerings. God, we really do pray, that as the song says, that you would give us a heart for the world, and there was passion for the world, and reaching people, the message of Jesus, that you would lead and guide us every step of the way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand and worship. May that be the prayer of our hearts, that God would ignite a fire. And if, if we're not there, I think like any other area of our life, I mean, only God is our salvation, right? That only God can light a fire in our hearts for those who don't know him. And so if we don't have that fire, what we do is we just go to him and say, Lord, this seems to be your heart, your passion, and I want to be uh, in line with you. And so I just come as I am. I know I can't change myself, but I just put myself before you and ask you to do in me What I can't do for myself, I ask you to reignite this passion in my heart for sharing you with those who don't know you and being part of a movement that does that. And so a couple things as we end today, number one is that if you need prayer on anything, we would love to pray with you. Over at the right side of the auditorium, uh, on the worship center over here on my right, uh, is uh, a group of prayer team that they would love to pray whatever you're facing in your life. Maybe it's something from today's message, maybe something completely uh, different, but they would love to pray with you. 
And then uh, I want to invite you back next week as we continue. As Paul and Barnabas take the first leg of their journey to go to the island of Cyprus, they're going to run into some major opposition. And what we're going to see is that whenever the king of, kingdom of God advances, whether it's um, in our own life, God's taking new territory in our own life, or when we're sharing the message of Jesus we're with someone, that there will always be spiritual opposition. There will always be spiritual warfare. And so next week, we're going we're to kind of unpack that and talk about this opposition, the dynamic of warfare, and what we need to do to break through that in order to take the new ground in our own life or with, with others. And so I hope you can be here for that. And until then, may the Lord be with you. And may Jesus, who said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. May that Jesus live well and strong, healthy in you this week. May Christ in you empower you to be a person perhaps you could never be on your own. That you have the courage, the passion, the wisdom, the words, the life to make an impact, to help others maybe not take that full step to coming to Christ, but that next step in their journey. And that together we would be able to use our gifts, our resources, our life experience, and our passions to share and advance the mission of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.